HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Ali Buzari. And this kind of amazing book called Ingredients, which is about ingredients, but redefines what an ingredient is. And I'm getting the hand gestures of lowercase versus uppercase, because that's what it really is. Um, When you think of an ingredient in your pantry, you know, uh, there, there's you know vinegar, there's oil in the fridge, there's butter and eggs. But you know what are these actually comprised of? If you had X-ray glasses on, what would you be seeing? Well, you'd be seeing what's in this book ingredient. And thank you so much for being on. Thank you for having me. So you know, as as a child, I'm, I'm sure you didn't have that same vision of what eggs and butter were. Um, where's this interest on that microbial on that structural level? you know, come from? Yeah. The, the fundamental level, um, came from, I think being a lifelong nerd. <laughs> and I mean that nerd has almost become like a really kind of weird backwards inside out buzzword now. But, um, I really, really found the thing that I wanted to do when I grew up, uh, in high school chemistry. And I liked this idea that there's an alphabet for the universe, that this, this thing like chemistry in general can explain, why cotton candy is great and why the sky is blue and why my bike would get rusty. And that was amazing. And um, later on, I figured out that there was also, uh, thankfully, a smaller alphabet of, I don't know, basically any, you could spell anything you wanted to do with food. I mean, were you interested as an eater as well? Or was it more about, you know, ins and outs of what these things do? Oh, yeah. My, My family is half Iranian, half Texan. So there would have been all kinds of strife and problems where I'm not super, super into food. I mean, do you still talk to your family about, you know, maybe Texan barbecue is better because of this? Or are they, they stayed in their ways of how they cook? And no, eat? no, no. My, my family and, and friends, and, and that was actually part of the whole thing with the book. And part of 
the the publisher and potential publishers when I was pitching the book, their disbelief was, I swear to you, I can this is this is meant to be for my Texan aunt and for a first semester culinary student and for a three Michelin star chef because this alphabet is something that for one reason or another the world of food science maybe hasn't been interesting enough to like broadcast that out. Um, but it, it's just something that it doesn't matter what kind of food you're into. Th- this, these are the rules to the game. You know, a lot of culinary students and, and young chefs these days uh, want to know about molecular gastronomy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something that's existed for a long, long time, maybe more in the forefront in the past decade or so. But, you know, it's a hard thing to grasp if you don't have a foundation of, you know, biochemistry like you do. Yeah, I would argue that molecular gastronomy is easier to understand if you don't have a foundation of biochem. And, and you know, that was, gratefully now, that's no longer the first thing that, like, a chef will ask me. I'm like, oh, are you trying to get me to do molecular stuff? Because yeah. I'm not into foam and Petri dishes. Hydrocolloids. The thing I would always say is, no, nah, man, this is, the, the, it is the same science, whether you're talking about hollandaise and, like, grilled asparagus, as if you're trying to create something that levitates six inches above the plate and, like, reads you your fortune and does your taxes for you. Like, all of that stuff, whether it's traditional or, or modernist, or if it's super highbrow, or if it's out of the back of a taco truck, it's all the same. And so, um, actually, I, I kind of have a huge qualm with the way that the the molecular thing hit our industry, is because stuff that came out of El Bulli or Alinea or any of those places, there was so much amazing stuff we could have learned from that instead of just grabbing the the buzzword headline recipe and just replicating it there's so much cooler stuff that we could have learned from spherifying olive oil and olive juice than just making spheres out of other stuff (laughs) like that's that same principle is why everything from fondue to like new york bagels works and it's just one thing you don't have to memorize a whole slew of different and and what is that one thing that one thing is is how minerals bind stuff together um you know, I don't. We don't have to get too much into it, but the idea is you add this extract from seaweed. It's a bunch of carbs, just like pectin you'd make with a jam. You add that to like uh, mango juice, and then you drop that mango juice plus carb into a brine of calcium. And what that calcium does is it's like little tiny staples. They staple together. They they tie together all of those carbs into a net that makes a gel. And that same thing is what makes I don't know. It's what makes uh, uh, proteins come together in tofu. When you add nigari, which is this salt that has magnesium in it, it does the exact same thing. That's why pickling lime added to your like old school kosher dills will keep those pickles like crisp and not wilted because that calcium is reinforcing the pectin that's naturally in um, those cucumbers. Um, New York bagels, that whole thing where it's like, oh, the water, they're so great because of the water. The specific characteristic of the water that makes New York bagels great is that it's really soft. So it has almost no calcium or magnesium. So you don't have all of these little tiny rivets in a bagel, which is basically a big web of starch and proteins. So you don't have as much stuff to bite through, so they stay tender. You don't have, like, locks squirting all over the place when you're biting too hard. Um, And when you're trying to make good fondue... You want proteins and stuff to come apart. And if you have a bunch of calcium, which we all know is in milk because it's good for your bones and blah, 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 um, that calcium is going to be doing the same thing. It's going to be like binding and riveting all those proteins together, making them super, super hard to come apart, um, which is why 
uh, whatever mad genius created Velveeta came up with a compound that they could add that would scoop up all the calcium and hide it from the proteins so that the proteins can just fall apart and be super smooth. Yeah. And I had this amazing experience where I was at um, 11 Madison Park a couple of days ago talking to, you know, perhaps one of the best chefs who comes from a country where fondue is a thing that you could ever talk to. And I, I kind of looked at him and I, I said, um, so the, the key to the world's best fondue is not like the perfect Kirsch or like, I don't know, some like refined, modified, ultratex, crazy starch ingredient. It's a one by one inch cube of Velveeta like thrown in before you get to your $30 a pound Gruyere. And uh, yeah, man, I mean, all of that comes out of, out of just this one thing that minerals do in your food. Yeah. So it's like the, it's like the ultimate bread starter, the Velveeta starter for fondue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you do it right, you'll, you'll never have to uh, taste it. And you could go online and get that like mysterious white powder that does it. But I think you get more style points for putting Velveeta and stuff. Yeah. People knowing <laughs> and still having it actually taste good. You know, what's amazing is that you kind of started on these elements, carbohydrates, um, minerals, proteins, which are just three. But like you said before, you, there's a very conflated alphabet that you're working with. Yep. And it's consisting of these eight new pantry items. Mm -hmm. Uh, let's, let's kind of run through those because the most fascinating one to me is water. Yep. You know, at the beginning of the book, because water is kind of everywhere. Mm -hmm. it, it is the ubiquitous, um, you know, agent of change for a lot of food. Yep. But what, what does water mean to you? Um, actually in the, the, the book sort of starts off saying that water is the, the theater. It's like the stage on which these other capital I ingredients do a bunch of weird stuff. And almost everything that you're ever going to do in the kitchen is going to be impacted by water. Whether you're trying to make something thick, you're trying to make something hold its color, you're trying to make something have the right like concentration of taste and aroma, or you're trying to make um, something hold together. It's all got something to do with water. And the crazy thing is every, that entire universe of water uh, comes down to basically like five tricks that water has up its sleeve. And so, you know, I've been going around the country doing these workshops for just all of my chef idols, basically, and, and their crews. And the first thing that we talk about is we pick one of the concepts in water. And I'll talk about one of the things that water does is it impacts the way stuff flows. Because, like, pure water is the thinnest thing in the kitchen. And from there, to make stuff thicker, all you have to do is, is put things in water's way, like little roadblocks. And, you know, I sort of get into... Asking people, you know, who in here went to formal culinary education of some kind? How long did you spend on mother sauces, derivative sauces, Italian sauces, dessert, pesto, coulis, like making stuff thick? And it's anywhere from six weeks to six months. And what's crazy is that whole that whole unit in, in culinary school and that whole um, subset, that whole like side of the bookstore with all the books on sauces it's all because of one really, really easy to explain concept in water. And I'm not saying learn that concept and then all of a sudden you magically, like Neo and the Matrix, have like all sauces downloaded in your head. But I am saying if you have that as like a running cartoon in your mind, like a picture in picture, you can visualize while stuff is happening, it becomes this interesting, like second layer of instinct where, um, you know, if, if you have a KitchenAid running with egg whites in it, you can hear, a, especially people who bake a lot, you can hear a change in the KitchenAid when it starts working harder and like the, it goes a little bit different tone. 
immediately you go over there and look in because you know that it's going to be getting close to its destination. You're not stopping to say, well, according to this book and this thing that I was taught, these seven steps will happen sequentially, and now it's time for me to turn off the KitchenAid. You hear the change, your brain flies through that list faster than you can think, and you instinctively go and check out what's going on. The purpose of this book is not to give you uh, uh, listicles and, and things to memorize and the recipe for the best uh, chicken wings you could ever make. The purpose of the book is to give you like walking, talking, street smart instincts of how to visualize this stuff almost subconsciously while you're cooking. You know, I'm looking at the cover right now and there are five distinctly different things there. You know, there, there's meat, popcorn, some kind of puree or reduced sauce, um, a brulee onion and mm-hmm. then a green, um, you know, we were talking about the interconnectedness of everything. Mm-hmm. How do these things meet? They all share all eight ingredients. Like that's, that is one of my favorite ways to like start off one of the chapters in this book is where I say in, there's an entire sugars chapter. Sugar is one of these building blocks and uh, you know, sugar, if sugar were an actor, it would be so typecast. It'd be like Sam Elliott, who will never not play a cowboy for the rest of his life, <laughs> just because he has the world's greatest mustache and a voice that makes you want to like smoke Marlboros, um, which don't do that, by the way. Um, sugar is that way. It's, it's, people are always like, oh, I don't, I'm not really into sugar. I don't like things that are sweet. I don't like candy. Sugar is just important, just as important for sauerkraut and soy sauce and pizza as it is for ice cream and, and cotton candy. And that's that's one of the interesting things to think is is the the key to really really good uh cucumber flavor coming through in gazpacho is to think about fat in cucumbers and in celery and in almost almost literally everything else and so it's all of all of the lowercase i ingredients that we think about in in a given day whether it's brisket or a marshmallow they all have at least some of the eight capital i ingredients and those are the levers that you're going to pull to do whatever you want in the kitchen, regardless of how you want to cook. You know, I, I kind of touched two of those things within sugar today is uh, I was just at a coffee shop before and uh, we were roasting coffee beans mm. and that that's that's active sugar. You know, yeah. that, that's heat applied. Uh, I'm also a, a vinegar more than a vinegar fanatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was tasting through balsamic mm-hmm. uh, vinegars this morning and that itself it's sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, but tell me, you know, Obviously, they're related because they have sugar, but how does sugar react differently in, you know, coffee and balsamic? So I, I, the, the first thing that I was thinking as you were saying that is it's not actually different. When, when you get anything that turns brown from sugar, that's one of sugar's like six tricks is it makes stuff turn brown, whether it's acting alone in a caramel where it's just sugars shattering apart and each different shard has a different shape that you're... Uh, receptors in your nose and your tongue grab onto and they're like, ooh, different flavors, different tastes. Um, or when sugar and protein high five and then explode to make Maillard browning happen, um, that all is fundamentally sort of the same. And then there's little nuances that are different, whether you're starting with the proteins in a steak or the proteins in a coffee bean. Um, so, so in like umbrella terms, they're exactly the same. And the whole trick of the book is that you'll start to see that each of these ingredients has its own personality. So sugar exploding and doing things um, in uh, a coffee bean 
is going to be slightly different from what's going on in vinegar that ages over time and, and slowly turns brown um, because of heat being around in different quantities, because of water being around in different quantities, and, and all of these things sort of come together. You almost start getting into the to the sensation that this is like a group of eight of your friends. I mean, we've all had that dynamic where you want to have a get together or you want to meet somebody for coffee or you want to organize an outing to a movie. And there are friends who are super aggro if plans change last minute. There are friends you don't want to spend uh, a lot of time alone with because you run out of things to say. There are two friends that you can't get in the same room together. There's all of this like friend calculus that goes on. And the capital I ingredient whole approach is like that. You'll, you'll see that coffee bean do its thing and, and you'll be like, wow, that's such a protein thing to do, you know? And, and, uh, you'll, you'll see an experience. Like if, if you're trying to make jams to give to people for the holidays, there are certain of these ingredients that, you know, you can just sling in there and they'll be totally fine. Like the calcium in your pectin is never going to change. Uh, the lipids in, um, I don't know the, the tomato jam that you're trying to make, the fats are finicky. And so you got to kind of coddle them. You got to you got to treat them nice. Otherwise, they'll end up smelling like fish and cardboard. And it's this thing where you will just start to get a gut instinct of of how these things are going to do what they do. Excellent. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Come back talk about more of these friends. Maybe even <laughs> carbohydrates, the most boring of them. Um, you've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Peter Kim, the executive director of MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. We're a nonprofit founded by Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues here on the Heritage Radio Network. And we want to take people on a learning adventure through the world of food. We just opened MOFAD Lab, our gallery space at 62 Bayard Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where we are currently showing Flavor, Making It and Faking It. Flavor features some very cool sensory interaction. Flavor tablets deliver tastings of vanilla and umami. And the Willy Wonka-inspired smell synth lets you compose over half a million different flavors. So come on by and visit MOFAD Lab. We're open five days a week, and tickets are $5 for kids and $10 for adults. Learn more about the Museum of Food and Drink at mofad.org. Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with Ali Buzari. And we, we were talking, you know, the, the new capital I ingredients in your pantry, sugar, water, carbohydrates, lipid, proteins, minerals, gases, and, and, and heat. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're going to try to touch all these bases, but it's such a... It's such a big, big subject. Luckily, there's a book. Luckily, there's a book. Um, and before we start talking about, you know, even carbohydrates, uh, I do want to talk about how you learn visually. Um, because what is so fascinating about this book, especially someone coming from a creative field, is seeing these infographics, seeing these illustrations, um, you know, and they're anthropologists. I can never say that word. Anthropomorphized. That's it. Yes, and but in in a way that's uh, you know cartoonish and relatable, and doesn't make it feel like someone's talking over your head. I, I would hope not. Um, I have often told people that the only employable skill that I have is the ability to speak human English. Um, it's it's really really strange this commitment to being austere and precise that is in the science world. 
And I've never been about that. That's never been the way I've learned. When, when I would take notes in, in school, I would doodle stuff. And that's how I would remember how, like, I don't know, uh, different bacteria do, did what they did or how, um, you know, ice skates worked or, like, whatever kind of class I was in. Um, it was all visual. And the problem with that is I am a horrendous artist. I, when I would be teaching classes in culinary schools and stuff, I would draw like a straight line and be like, all right, pretend this is a shark because <laughs> otherwise I'll spend 20 minutes to not get anywhere. Um, so I, I actually teamed up for this book with um, a comic book artist named Jeff Delier and one of my best friends from growing up who grew up to be like a Nat Geo doc filmmaker, amazing human named Jason Jacks. And uh, the book, it's funny, like it's, it's my name on the cover. But I like there's only maybe 30 percent of the pages are actually text <laughs> in a 270 something page book. Most of them are photos and illustrations. And that is not to dumb it down. It's to make it so that it's streamlined. It's, it's to make it so that it's a vitamin. Um, it, it's to cut away as much of the chaff as possible so that you can get straight to connecting to this stuff emotionally. And yeah, the visuals are sort of the entire thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at a page right now with seaweed crackers and rice cakes. Mm -hmm. um, again, two things maybe textually I, I think are similar, but mm -hmm. I mean, what is it about those that, that connect those two things? It's, it's the ability of carbs to make stuff crispy. Crispiness is basically gridlocking things on, on a really fundamental level. And the more carbs and proteins and sugars and big bulky things you throw in the way, um, and obviously pulling water out helps, uh, the more you can lock in, um, if you zoomed in on a, on a nori crisp or a rice cake, you, you'd see this gridlock where when you bite into it, it resists until it shatters instead of like mushing apart because nothing has any space to room to, to move. Um, and so in a nori chip, it's, um, carbs from seaweed. It's like probably alginate is in there somewhere. Um, and in a rice cake, it's rice starch. And those two are the same principle, even though they're vastly different appearances and textures and all sorts of things. I mean, we were talking about lipids mm -hmm. uh, in tomatoes mm -hmm. um, and how those are, are kind of volatile and unstable. Um, of these elements, what what is the stabilizer? What is the thing that kind of makes everything okay? I don't know if there's one that makes everything okay. I would say that the, the cook <laughs> is the one that makes everything okay. Um, but there are some that are really, really bulletproof. In general, minerals are kind of never going to do anything. Minerals can move around, um, but they're always going to be swimming. And by that, I mean, like, they're never going to evaporate. You actually will never smell salt. The smell of the salty sea is not like salt coming up into the air and into your nose. It's just your brain associating the smell of rotting fish and kelp with that one time you got hit in the mouth with a wave. <laughs> um, but yeah, salt's never going to go anywhere. When you, I, I always think of like, if you have um, like a poaching bath, if, if you have some court bouillon that you're poaching things in in a restaurant, over the course of service, that salt, the only place it can ever go is into the fish that you're poaching in or into the, to the pasta that you're cooking in the blanche water. It's never going to evaporate out with the water. So you'll have to keep refilling the water. But as long as you're not pulling out too much of that salt as it hitches a ride on whatever you're cooking in that water, it's never going to go anywhere. So you're telling me there's a finite amount of salt in the world? Oh, yeah. And it's just moving around? Yeah. We're not, we're not going to be, like, we're taken not over out. by salt? No, we're not going to be out of it. Um, but, yeah, it's just, it's all, like, pawn shop economy just being traded around. I actually read the craziest 
Um, I think it was a New York Times article. It was about how when this has nothing to do with food, but when like bacteria and scary stuff invade your body, one of the first things they do is they go after your iron because iron is something that you can't manufacture. There's the same amount of iron sitting on earth right now as there always has been. And, uh, yeah, they need to get after that iron. Wow. So salt, uh, um, you scared me so much with the, that iron the, thing. It's I, kind of amazing. There's a reason that salt is the thing that probably the most wars in history have been fought over. Yeah. It's because you can't, you can't like just ferment salt in your, you know, kombucha lab. Like it's not something that you can create. It's something that you can harvest and something that you can move around. And in recipes, thankfully, it's one less thing that you don't have to worry about moving around in the same way as you know, pieces of lipids that make things smell great because those will literally float out into the ether and potentially never come back. I mean, what about gases then? I feel like they're atmospheric. You know, they're there. They're n- never going away. They're just moving around as well. They're there. They're. Ne- I mean, none of this stuff is ever like going away. But when something, when, when gases leave the inside of that beautiful Dutch baby pancake souffle thing that they bring out to your table at the brunch place you waited two hours in line for, Unfortunately, that gas is never going to come back. And so the pageantry is dead at that point. So, yeah, it's not the gas isn't going to like blink out of existence. But for our purposes, it might as well be because I want that Dutch baby to be proud. Yeah. It's like when I peek in the oven for popovers and just room. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there, there's a couple amazing things. In, well, there's many amazing things in this book. But, you know, it is a feast for someone who is very visual as well, mm-hmm. because you can see a picture of Doritos. Mm-hmm. and wonder what chapter it's in and why, um, and then read that you believe it's one of the most savory things ever. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, again, I'm not a huge fan of the way traditional food science has been. For a long time, it's been the science of not killing people, which is great, but not necessarily the thing I want to work on, and uh, putting stuff into cans and bags. And, you know, there there's a lot more of the food world that has yet to be covered, so that's partly why that other stuff interests me more. But Doritos are crazy, man. Doritos are the most unholy, like super virus um, of flavor, amazing thing ever. It's, um, without getting too much into it, the way umami and savoriness works is the more different umami things you put into food, uh, the more obviously umami you get, but it is like exponential growth. It's a weird brain thing where for us it's synergistic. So if you take table sugar and honey and you've got like sucrose and fructose, they're going to taste like sucrose and fructose put together. If you take a bunch of different sources of umami and put them together, it's like two plus two equals 37. Oh my God, this is so savory. And if you look at the back of a Doritos bag, it's like, I, I can't remember. It's like six or eight. Like it's like cheese powder and MSG and like stuff from mushrooms and stuff from other cheeses. It's just it's cheating it's it is the lance armstrong of snack foods <laughs> but it's proteins but when i look at a chip i say oh carbohydrates but yeah it's really the proteins that that multitude of different umami yeah. proteins breaking down proteins into their little individual amino acids that's where the majority of savoriness comes from in our food it's i mean that's where msg comes from and and people who are like ah i really hate um, I, you know, I avoid MSG in my food while they're like eating delicious artisanal miso soup are lying to themselves and to others. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite things, um, is chicharrones. Yeah. And the amount of, uh, kind of modification a chicharron goes through until mm-hmm. its final state fascinates me. Mm-hmm. Um, can you 
talk me through that? Say, say if this was one of your workshops sure. and someone brought up the question like, how do I make the perfect puffed chicharron and yeah. where do I start and how does it finish? Well, I'll do you one better. The way you make the perfect puffed anything is basically what you're trying to do is create you remember those like parachutes that you some people would play play with in like elementary school where the whole class would grab an end and like pull it back and forth and it would trampoline up and down i had that i don't know I oh, no absolutely I'm, I'm in my head imagining those yeah yeah so Geronimo, i think was the game <laughs> yeah so basically you're trying to create that in your food and so whether that's uh, a puffed chicharron or it's like puffed quinoa or it's um, like a palm souffle, those super baller potato chips that are like gotta go down New Orleans globes, yeah. right? Or beignets, or yeah. any of that. What you're trying to do is you're trying to create a trampoline or like a hot air balloon that's limber enough to expand, um, but it's not so limber that it'll break. Because the whole point is you're going to be evaporating a bunch of water. That water is going to try to expand like almost two thousand times as big, and if you can catch that that draft, if you can if you can catch that wind, you can sail it and you you create this puff. So all of the the different steps of cooking a chicharron, of what you marinate it in, how you pre cook it, um, then frying it at a really high temperature. The first few steps are always to loosen up basically a net of protein getting it ready to fill with air. And then the temperature that you fry it at affects how quickly that water explodes into puffs of gas. And if your net is ready, you'll catch it and you'll get the super puffy, fluffy chicharron. Exact same thing with, um, like, again, if you're trying to puff anything from pasta to grains, there's usually a pre-cooking step. And that pre-cooking step is to loosen up the net, in this case is made of carbs, so that when you put those grains into a hot cast iron skillet or into a fryer or into a oven, uh, you're gonna, it's the same thing. You're exploding water. You're, you're creating these little volcanoes of water, and you just want to make sure you have a loose but sturdy net ready to catch it. I mean, that's, that's kind of the whole magic of uh, proofing bread and allowing it to, to rest the appropriate amount of time before baking it. Um, so you have that net that will expand and and uh, not explode and not fall flat. I mean, are there any foods that confound you? Are there any techniques that you think are, you know, completely moot? Uh, I don't know about moot, but there, I mean, there's always something to think about. And I've, I've, the game that I've been playing over the past two years of putting this book together is to like stump it, try to figure out what is one example of a food where all of a sudden I find out that water actually has a sixth trick or something like that. I haven't been able to find one. Um, I, I mean, that's something that I'm sure is going to come in, uh, just going to get inundated with the hashtag actually is once the book yeah. is out there. But like, I, I welcome them. I'm super excited to see that. Um, but one of the things I was thinking about for a long time is there's an old school, not it's sort of like middle, middle old school um, chef trick of taking to make like really green herb oil. There's this technique uh, where you take like, I don't know, fennel greens and you put them in oil in a really, really high-powered blender, and you blend it until it smokes. Mm -hmm. And then everybody says, oh, it locks in the green color. I'm like, man, that is the I have never found out a way to explain why that works. That's not, like, bro science. <laughs> um, and I think I figured it out the other day just, like, sitting on a plane going to Chicago. Um, one of the, the, the greenness of green vegetables is mostly covered in the minerals chapter because it's a lot about magnesium. The thing, chlorophyll in it that makes vegetables green is a big solar panel. And the thing that sits at the center of that solar panel holding it at just the right angle to be green uh, is a magnesium. 
And when you're, I don't know, overcooking Brussels sprouts in a pot of water, one of the things that turns that Brussels sprout brown is the magnesium dissolves. It gets super excited with heat and it dissolves out into the water. And, it, you know, the solar panel kind of gets discombobulated and it now looks brown. Um, if you take away the water, that's less of a risk of happening. But the issue is if I take fennel fronds or parsley or basil or whatever, and I want to make oil with those things, there's still water in the basil leaf and in the fennel fronds. So there's still a place for that magnesium to sneak out and turn the whole thing brown. But if you heat it up till it smokes... That means that you're removing enough of the water that the temperature can come high enough that it starts to basically burn. And if you get it at the first second you see the smoke, you won't overcook it and then actually burn it. It's this. It's like all eight chapters of the book in one thing. Yeah. But that was something like for years, chefs would ask that and I'd be like, I don't know, but let's think about it. And it turns out we thought about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's right because you know with all that fat you're in a sense confeeing it in like a hermetically sealed environment. Exactly. So water becomes pseudo negligible at yeah. that point. Yeah. Exactly. But now you know Vitamixes and, and blenders have become so good we don't have that smoke point on the machine. You can I, still get there. Okay. <laughs> Dial it up to eleven. You it, you will walk if you walk into any good restaurant where there's just a bunch of like cook ass cooks doing really amazing work and just getting through. You will see probably lots of dead carcasses of Vitamixes <laughs> because a Vitamix was a tool that was put on this earth to abuse, and uh, people still do that, and it's it's amazing. It's yeah. like you must get me to the destination that I want to get to, and it's it's a noble sacrifice for the poor machine. You know, I, I feel bad because you get inundated with questions all the time, like how do I do this? How do I do that? Um, but at the beginning of the show, right, right prior to going on air, I, we were talking about. Um, uh, a book that I'm working on about offal. Yep. And uh, about how an experiment with blood and figs yeah. didn't work out. Yeah. You're trying to make a blood sausage. Yeah. Um, and later found out that the figs have some kind of enzyme in them that, mm -hmm. you know, won't let the blood coagulate. Yep. Um, you know, how often do you run into these questions and you have the answer right away? Or how often are you, uh, um, you know, saying, let me get back to you? Yeah, um, more. I have the answer ready to go more now than in the past. Um, but I'll tell you this. Th I think the whole point of going to grad school in science is becoming comfortable saying, I don't know, but let me get back to you. Because grad school, like, like science gives you the ability to find almost any answer. But you'd have to be a total jerk to feel like you had every answer off the top of your head. Um, and But what I can say now, is, and this is what I hope other people will be able to say after reading the book, is I'm not sure exactly why, but I guarantee you it has something to do with proteins. I guarantee you it has something to do with sugar, just because that's sugar's MO. Sugar, that's such a sugar thing to do. <laughs> and from there, it's, it's so much easier to then go and, and either tinker with it and chef it out or research it or ask a friend or look it up in the French Laundry Cookbook or, you know, whatever it is. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I positioned this book on purpose not to replace the other amazing books that are written on the science of food, like um, obviously Harold McGee's book, which is the perfect book on the subject ever written, or Modernist Cuisine, or Kenji's book, or Cooking for Geeks, or anything that the Ideas and Food Guys do, or what Dave Arnold does. This is meant to be sort of like an Ethernet cable to connect people to those really amazing, more high-level ideas quicker. Because I, I'm a huge fan of like what Kenji's been writing on, on Serious Eats Online forever. And the problem is, like, he'll come up with a recipe for, like, I don't know, the, the perfect crispy potato. 
And the, the thing that drew me in is he would explain to you why the perfect crispy potato became crispy. And then he would give you the method. The problem is, you know, then he'll go on for, you know, the Thanksgiving special and say, here's the perfect crispiest turkey leg you can ever make. And it's such a bummer that he has to stop, rev up the engine to then explain crispiness again, spend all of that word count going through basically the same principle just to get everybody ready for the brilliance that he's created. So my pitch to him was when I showed him the book early on, I was like, listen, man, I want this to be a way for people to come in already being like, yeah, I get crispy in general. Now give me Kenji's recipes so I can put it into practice. Um, and, and just give everybody a platform, get everybody speaking the same language to go then to things that are what I think are like more dictionaries, like the food lab and on food and cooking. And I don't know, Julia child, like those to me feel like dictionaries. You're, you're looking up squab or you're looking up a hot dog or you're looking up a meringue. And that's a lot easier to, to understand when you already speak the language. And it's really hard to learn a language just by reading the dictionary through which like I read on food and cooking, like all 800 and whatever pages cover to cover over four years of grad school. But if you don't have that kind of time, you still need that book is still where all of the answers are. And this is maybe a plat. It's, it's a surfboard that you can use to surf around in it easier. You know, we first met at the Culinary Institute of America during a conference where there were a lot of international chefs, restaurateurs, yeah. and a lot of them had translators. And that's how they, you know, talk to each other. Yeah. And I, I think you just may be, you know, the chef translator, you know, cool. be it international, be it, you know, uh, in their own heads, eccentric. Um, again, you're giving someone the language to be able to talk about the food in a way that, uh, you know, they weren't able to before. And, and just kind of amazing to see it, you know, compacted into this book with so many strikingly visual and, and wonderfully written elements that, that, you know, make you feel comfortable be, to, to, to be part of that conversation. That's, that's amazing to hear. Thank you. I mean, the, the translation, the, the same language thing is definitely a recurring theme. And what I've been really excited about, uh, you know, I've, I will, by the end of next week have been to, I think 50 restaurants in 11 cities around the country. And I've also started doing a lot of stuff for home cooks and people who are interested in nutrition and cooking healthy food for their families and all these different angles. The fun thing is whether you're a chef trying to communicate to your new line cook why this pain in the ass recipe is worth it and make something good, or whether you're my mom trying to explain to my aunt why this new recipe, she should try it for Thanksgiving and how it'll work. This is a chance for everybody to speak the same language, whether you're you know, a personality on the Food Network or you know, you're somebody's sister. And that is exciting to me. And that's what I've sort of closed all these workshops with telling people. I didn't come to your restaurant to sell six more books. Like that would be weird and also totally not like move the needle if that's the goal. I, I came to try to get everybody speaking the same language and plug into this Gulf stream of people sharing ideas around and around. Let's finally share the ideas with like a universal. I mean, your, your background is in math. Math is way easy because calculus is the same here as it is in, in Copenhagen. Um, food is the same here as it is everywhere in the world. So let's, let's talk about it in a really easy, uh, easy to understand and communicate way. So let's capitalize ingredient and, uh, everyone should go out and get Allie's book on shelves now today, today, this today. very day. I this went second, I went and creeped on the first three copies at the strand. Let's, let's all speak the same language, get the book. And, uh, if you ever see Allie around, ask him as many questions as you can. Thank or, you again for being on. Thank you. Yeah. You've been listening to the food scene on heritage radio network.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Tergal. 
Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to MoFat. And if you don't know MoFat, please check it out. Their next exhibition, all about Chinese food, is uh, coming soon. Music by Cookies and David Engineering. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.